You are listening to the Football Odyssey. This is your host, Aaron Harris, and today I'm glad to have you all join me to hear a conversation with Bob Kowser Jr., an English professor at St. Lawrence University and the author of three books, including the one we'll be discussing today, Dream Season. A professor joins America's oldest semi-pro football team. Published in 2004, Bob spoke as a memoir of his experiences within the world of semi-professional football as a player for the Watertown Red and Black during the 2001 Empire Football League season. The book is full of interesting information that interweaves Bob's experiences with tidbits of history regarding the oldest semi-pro gridiron outfit in the U.S., along with Bob's personal history within football and his observations of the game itself. For those of you who love football books as much as I do, trust me when I say that this is a hidden gem that you want to get your hands on. I have a link to the book in the description, and as always, if you like the show and this episode, subscribe, share, leave a review, and follow us on social media. With all that said, here is my conversation with Bob Kowser Jr. All right, Bob Kowser, thank you for taking the time to join us tonight, and how are you? I'm good. It's my pleasure. I'm really grateful for you to for you um, ha- having you know taken a look at the book and being interested in talking about it. Yeah, of course. It's a pleasure to meet you as well. So you're a professor at St. Lawrence University and you teach English. Um, I imagine some of the more eager students probably come in having read some of your work. But do you ever get students that comment specifically on this book? Um, I you know you'd be surprised. I don't know that that any of them know it it's in the bookstore uh but you know sometimes they'll hear oh yeah he played some i heard you played semi-pro football i'll get that sometimes i don't talk about i used to talk about the process of writing it a lot because i thought it would help them you know uh but it seems it's so distant in my in my own mind now that i don't i don't bring it up much but from time to time someone will will mention it yeah does that seem surreal looking back at that point in your life thinking man i actually played semi-pro football yeah, it, it is rather surreal. Um, it, it was a great, um, you know, it, it made a big difference, I think, in my writing career and in my teaching career, too. But I almost didn't do it, just like probably anybody would tell you about anything that they did. Like, I I almost didn't even drive to Watertown. And then I got there and smelled the locker room, smelled the pads. And I was like, I don't have to do this. You know, I'm 32 years old. I'm a college professor. I don't have to do this. But it was the decision to stay that really made the difference. But I almost didn't. How like do you go about explaining to people like if it comes up in conversation? Like if someone will say, "Oh, hey, you know, I heard you had played semi-pro ball." If they ask about like, "Hey, what was the first book?" If they're like getting advice, I mean, how, how do you kind of go about recapping that experience to them? Well, you know, it was it was interesting because it started as kind of a gimmick in order to have a book that I could sell to a publisher. You know, I had heard from, actually, I went to a lecture delivered by my publisher before he was my publisher. And he said, you know, if you can find a subculture that you can sort of explore, you probably have the makings of a good nonfiction book. And semi-pro football here in New York State is a subculture. And um, so I knew I had that. But what happened over the course of writing the book was I got invested in my own play and whether I was any good and, and it rekindled all that old love of play of, you know, playing football. So that, that surprised me. It was supposed to be about a book in the beginning. And then in the end, it was, you know, it was really about at least in part about playing football again, but you know, the way the press wanted to sell it was as, you know, dream season, me recapturing old glory. I didn't have a lot of, re- a lot of glory to recapture, mm-hmm. you know, I hadn't been recruited out of high school or anything like that. Uh, a couple of schools sent feeler letters, but, you know, no scholarship offers or anything like that. I was small. I was slow. I was a pretty average player. But um, for me, it had been about um, this team that was 100 years old and and also about masculinity and about, you know, what, what men are like, you know, um, on teams like that and, you know, on fire departments or whatever – groups of, you know, men, you know, of a certain age, you know, it's kind of a sociology thing yeah. in a way. So how, how do you go about kind of balancing what you set out to do originally with what the publisher also wants to have in the book for them to market? Yeah, I mean, that really, it was really only a marketing thing. It was a title change and, and the way that they marketed it, because I think 
you know, the, the issue with selling it was that 70% of the book buying public is women or what at that time. So to market it as recapturing old gridiron glory meant that men might be interested in it, but that's only three out of 10 book buyers. So um, there was also, they wanted me to write, one of the last things that I did on the advice of a woman poet that I uh, met at a writer's colony who was really gracious and gave me a read. She said, write more about your home life. And then all of a sudden the book kind of opened up a little bit when I wrote about my marriage and my, my children, my child at the time. And um, that really changed things because other than that, it was totally focused on, on football and um, that opened it up. And I think they, the press was happy because that meant, all right, here, here, if you're standing on the sidelines while your stupid husband is playing football, you know, here's something, you know, here's, here's the other part of their life. And here's a way of looking at that. Yeah. That, that's what really started capturing my attention as I was going into it, because the way you intertwine what was happening with the team, but also putting in your personal life with, you know, being at home and then also recapping a lot of the memories that you had growing up. That's whenever I think everything really started to gel and I really got invested in that part of it. Yeah. My child, I mean, my childhood with football, you know, that's, that's where it captured me as, as, you know, as a little kid on a college campus, um, the team in, in Martin now is a uh, division one. Um, my high school just finally won the state championship last fall because the coach of the D1 football team, his son is at Alabama. He was the quarterback. So you get a division one team, they bring in a division one coach with a division one kid. Right? right. And he's the quarterback. So they, uh, that, but that was great. And, and I, you know, I, but I remember the old days when, you know, the, the concession stand was right in the corner of the end zone and there were cattle at the other end zone. And, you know, it was like the 1950s and guys, you know, like, it was like a, you know, I can't even describe to you how Hoosiers it was, mm -hmm. but that all you wanted to be in a town like that was the football, was on the football team. And that's how I grew up. So would, would you, it, yeah. would you say growing up, it was like a rite of passage for a Absolutely. young boy? Absolutely. And it's so funny because I have to, sons, one who's 22, who I write about in the book, and one who's 18, and um, my 17-year-old is about six feet tall and about 210, and but he looks like an offensive tackle, and, you know, my coach would have drooled over him, but it just isn't the thing for them. There's so many other ways that they can spend their time, and I don't think, because this is a small town that I live in, but I just don't think that it is the singular rite of passage that it was when I was growing up, you know, here it's hockey, but if, even if you're not a hockey player, they just, adolescence is different, but yeah, for me, it was, it was it. Then when they mentioned my name on the radio the first time that all of a sudden I was a real person before that completely anonymous, you know? Yeah. It definitely kind of creates like those formative moments in your young life, right? Like whenever you get the, you know, the attention of your peers for your play, or even just that first time you get hit and have to stand up for yourself against someone on the team who wants to screw with you. You know, you kind of feel like those cultivate those moments um, into being the man you are. Right. And you wouldn't think that they'd be repeated in semi-pro football, but as you know, from the book, they happened all over again. Right. You know, you have to, so somebody tries to, you know, sort of like somebody decides they don't like you and they're going to expunge you from the roster and, you know, just like in high school. Did like those, whenever, whenever those happened um, in the moment, did you immediately think back to like your early days of like high school or like little league and think about times when those happened? Like, man, this is deja vu. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would just sort of like look up at the sky, like, really? Like, seriously, like we're going to do this again. Yeah. But really we were so that, but that made for some comedy too. Yeah. You know, because I wasn't quite as insecure at, at 30 as, as I was at 14. Uh, you know, to to have failed at 14 would have been a disaster. Right. Um, to fail at 30, you know, it's not the stakes are lower and you can laugh more. Yeah, it, it, you're emotionally more stable and not as fearful. Right. Yeah. Uh, you have a life. I mean, I had the that. I think that was the surprise though, was that I did have a life outside of football and success in that life. But but by the time we got to midseason, I it's like I forgot. And I needed to, I needed to succeed on the gridiron again, mm -hmm. even though I had that whole life, I, I just lost, you know, and that, that was this, you know, if, if a book doesn't have a surprise in it for you, if you don't really sort of learn something about yourself, you know, what are you doing? And, and so that was the thing that surprised me was how invested I got in, in my performance and in those relationships and things like that. 
Well, yeah, I think invariably there, there's going to be some part of you that wants to start impressing the people around you too, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I was the 12th man on offense and basically the 12th man on defense. So I was always like just, you know, and some of that was just the politics of the team. And some of it was probably that I was probably about the 12th out of 11, Right. you know, uh, it was a long long-standing team that these guys a lot, a lot of the starters have been on the team a long time it was hard to unseat people in their mm. positions and like that so um but it was also frustrating because as you know from reading it they they couldn't beat their nemeses because they wouldn't change anything right they didn't do things like watch film or you know like game plan or it was like pickup they just showed up and like you know yeah. dug their heels in played as tough as they could like a bar fight you know right so, Reading the book, um, it seems to me that you have like a very academic viewpoint of the game because you, you bring up a lot of scholars in the book who have written essays and you mentioned fictional authors like Don DeLillo and Endzone. Um, wh when do you think that this part of the game, the real intellectual side, kind of kicked in for you? It's interesting. I don't know. I think when I was writing the book, they, there's an old saw that the the quality of the writing about a sport is equivalent to the size of the ball used to play it, which mm. would mean football does not have a strong tradition of writing about it, but golf and baseball do. Um, and that's, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but uh, it may be that any, anyway, that's, that's what you hear. Um, but I started to dig around. I didn't read about football much. It was more things like NFL films, mm. you know, that gave me my background in the NFL. I mean, I've been watching it. I think about it you know, from time to time, I've been watching it almost 50 years now. My mother let me stay home from mass to watch football when I was three or four, because I wasn't going to pay attention. She knew I wasn't, yeah. you know, and, and not, it wasn't actually the games. It was the game of the week, which I called music football, because they always had orchestral, you know, you didn't find out until later that, that they, they had the same five or six melodies that they would play every week with the same, you know, and I watch it now. It's very nostalgic for me, not because it's football, but it's because of what I watched. Um, but anyway, yeah, the academic intellectual part, um, I had to start seeking that out, I think, writing a book. I knew that that would be – I knew I wanted that to be part of, you know, the story of, of how the season that I played went wasn't enough to carry a book. And as it turned out, neither was history. I also needed, um, you know, that home life part too, right? I needed all that complexity. But yeah, I, it wasn't something – I didn't have favorite books about football that I had read that, you know, there's, there was a great book by Jay Acton about the Potsdam Firebirds yeah. that I, that I read. Um, did, you, Marcus, did you ever see uh, the uh, NFL films documentary? Yeah, I did. I did yeah. actually. Yeah. And then, I think that that team was probably a little better than the league I played in, but I would, I would, you know, if, if, as I wrote in the book, if, if there was a D one player on the field, you knew it. You know, when he laced up his cleats, you could, that's just, those athletes are a different thoroughbred breed, right? We had a lot of, I would say a lot of division two mm -hmm. quality players and a lot of guys who, and so if you played division two or division three, you were coached how to hand fight on the line of scrimmage, those kinds of, those little edges that I didn't have as a high school player, yeah. you know, those little things that took you over the top of just, you know, your sort of physical gifts and all that. Um, but so I would say the Potsdam Firebirds, I think they were kind of like a, like a just a rung below, like they're like a Canadian team or an arena team, right? But, right. Yeah. What about uh? Did you read Paper Lion going into this project, or was that something that you read while yeah. it was going on? Uh, I read going in, and 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 I used my metaphor for it was, um, I think he calls himself Plimpton calls himself like, uh. Six string quarterback, but a first string writer. And I said, I'm probably second on both. Right. You know, <laughs> yeah. I'm a much better football player than Plimpton. I'm probably not the writer Plimpton was. Well, I, that's that's something that was kind of interesting how you're talking about in the beginning and tying in some of your more like personal life and your uh, memoirs too, because Plimpton was a guy who was doing this as an experiment, but he wasn't necessarily trying to prove he could play. Right. I mean, in the movie, I guess it turns out. <laughs> In the, in the in the in the memoir, he can't even get out get out from under the center. Right? Yeah, not at all. Yeah. Whereas with you, it was like you know you're also writing, doing this as a writing project, but you're also gradually going into it as the season goes along, proving to yourself that you can play. So I thought that was like interesting how the two books are similar but different in that sense. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and I knew that that was, you know, in terms of marketing or the tradition of writing about football, I knew that was a book you had to you had to refer to. Yeah. Like, you know, you had if you're capped to what he did. And um, I mean, you know, the Watertown Red and Black was nowhere, you know, they're not the Detroit Lions. Yeah. But um, you know, um there was something I was gonna say that's just run out of my mind um about Plimpton. But um yeah, that there what there was an effort in writing the book to kind of bring together all these books about football. Like I wanted to have to to have to know what had been said about football in this culture before that, you know. Yeah. Um Frederick Exley, you know, one of the greatest football books is Fans Notes, and he grew up in Watertown. His father coached the team. So he, that was an obvious one, you know. Yeah, it almost feels like fate, yeah. right? Like like uh, one of the best football fiction books needs to have a nonfiction book to accompany in the same town that he was born yeah. in. Yeah, and that was that was kind of what you know I, when I moved up here uh, and I took started taking the newspaper. I tell the story in the book, like I that was what t- I was like. Oh, was, you know, it's, it's like in some ways being a writer is, is realizing when you're in, in a situation that you should try to take advantage of, and that's what I did. It was like, oh, someone should draw all these things together. All I have to do is sacrifice my body for yeah. six months and. Although I ended up playing for five years, right? But yeah. When you were at Nebraska, in this portion of the book, you had a really uh, interesting comment about when you were there, you loved going to the football games. You know, that was right when they had that great Cornhusker defense, you know, three national championships in four years. Uh, but your a lot of your colleagues and your professors weren't really the biggest football fans and they didn't really have a lot of respect for the program. Um, and you, I guess, had to conceal a little bit of your interest or moderate it to a certain extent. I mean, can, can you sort of comment on first the divide between the athletic department and, uh, you know, university professors and sort of like how you would go about picking and choosing when you express your fandom versus just kind of letting it go to the wayside in a way. Yeah. Um, you know, I was a graduate student, so I wasn't, there wasn't as much attention on how I was spending my free time as there might've been if I'd been on the faculty there, but, uh, you know, and I, in this town, I'm more often, uh, you know, I went to pick up my car the other day after I got, um, you know, the tires rotated or whatever. And the guy's like, so are you still, still coaching at St. Lawrence? You know, the mm-hmm. assumption people make when they see me because of my build is that I'm a coach and not an English professor. Uh, but my heart is, of course, you know, in the English department and not on the football field. However, I had grown up a fan of the Huskers, like in Tennessee, from like the time of the scoring explosion in 1982 and 83. Uh, I've got the T-shirt upstairs that says "Real Men Go for Two. I don't know if you remember the Miami game, you know. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it goes back that far. So, the the fact that my time there coincided with that great team, including their current coach, um, was amazing, and uh, I loved it. So, you know, but just the other day, for example, like the Deshaun Watson press conference, you know, the owners are standing on either side of him. He's like, you know, he's, uh, you know, he said he maintains his innocence. They express their awareness of the sensitivity of the situation. And then everybody says, let's get back to what's really important, which is football. It's like, like, you know, so, so on the one hand, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to watch every game this season, but on the other hand, uh, you know, I'm also aware of how out of control our obsession with these games can get you know what i mean yeah they don't even think about saying let's get to the whole the whole building's really excited that we can finally move on to what's important you know and i know you didn't ask about that but that's kind of like what was going on in nebraska if you remember there was a big lawrence phillips scandal there he's now dead uh but he assaulted his girlfriend on campus scott frost was involved in that too and uh he was suspended there was a big uh i think it would have been a bigger deal now um, but there was a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, opposition to his being reinstated to at the end of the season, but Osborne said he thought it was for, in his, in, in the player's best interest to play in the game, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, he got umpteen second chances because he was so talented and it's just like Watson. It's like, he has to pay 5 million in fines. So he only has 225 million left. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's crazy. So it's difficult for me. And I wanted to write, a, I guess I, I didn't write as much about that as I probably would now. Um, I can't imagine having been at Penn State after Sandusky. Sure. But I knew people, I had a colleague who was a Penn State uh, graduate student 
before he came to St. Lawrence and a huge fan would drive down to a lot of home games. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, uh, it was, it was difficult and there, and, and I didn't make a big issue of it, uh, because that whole egghead meathead thing that I write about in the book is real. Mm-hmm. You know, people are not really ready for you to be both. They assume that it's actually impossible to both enjoy that sport, playing it and watching it, and be a critical thinker who, you know, has the right attitude about X, Y, and Z, right? And I hope that, you know, I hope I am that person that, you know, but it does mean when I see those a press conference like that, you know, like, you have to think about it. Like, what is going on here exactly? Like, on the one hand, they're infantilizing him. You know, he's standing there like their child. And he's like, what does it mean to to apologize for something you maintain your innocence about? Like, yeah, can we, like, rhetorically, it's just so messed Performative, up. Yeah. It's, oh, yeah, totally, totally. But in a way that, you know, and at the end, it's the ESPN guys like, wow, they're just happy. The building's really happy to just move on. Yeah. Why? Well, I, I, I don't want to use any of this, Aaron, but. No, no, this this is all relevant because, I mean, in kind of going off uh, the point about, you know, not being able to be both, I think a lot of it, too, is I think if people took time and really kind of dived into what makes the game unique, you you find it's almost going to be as complex as chess, right? Like there's just so many variables, so many moves a person can make, and you think that would appeal to a critical thinker, right? But I think sometimes the whole culture around, um, you know, hardest hits, or, you know, saying like, you know, those, you know, biggest ESPN highlights and the violence of it kind of overtakes the intellectual side of it, right? And I enjoy the physicality part of it. I just wish sometimes, you know, the intellect part of it would also be as marketed just as much. Well, I, you know, honestly, like, you know, I'm I'm one of those guys that hates to see Seattle learning how to rugby tackle. I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've lived abroad quite a bit in the last 10 years and, um, have made an effort several times to try to interest people who are rugby and soccer fans, football fans, to watch American football. And that, you know, they're 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 like, why do these guys all wear skateboard pads? Why don't they play like real men? Or why all these stoppages? You know, and you have to explain that with the amount of strategy between every single play in the NFL, you need 15 seconds to, to platoon players in and out. You know, it's it's if you don't know, they get, that's the the knock that it gets. But the other thing about Europe that's interesting and universities, which is back to your original question, is they don't have soccer teams. Colleges there are for college. Mm. And there's a part of me as a professor that is really grateful for that when I taught in Denmark, that you aren't competing for students' attention with 100,000 people in a football stadium on Saturday or fraternities or any of the other distractions that are part of American academic life university life um you know it's just universities are for university right and we just have such a different system and i i we we didn't know anything else or i didn't at that point so um now i think now that you know travel's great because you you learn things like that and you learn what they think about our football and i always tell them look the guy makes an arrow out of his body with a plastic helmet like that and comes in the side of your head there's nothing in rugby that's like that i can tell you yeah you know and then my friends here tell me hockey is actually rougher than football because they played semi-pro football and semi-pro hockey. And with the boards and everything, they would all argue that the harder hits are hockey. So, yeah. But, but before... I, you know, I love watching, I love breaking a game down. I love Andy Reid. I love how do you get people open when everybody in the field is a world-class track star? Yeah. How does anybody get open? You know what I mean? And I love thinking about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that's a great part about uh, YouTube. Like we were talking before the interview started, it's like now you have so many different guys who can just break down film on yep. really any position, right? Like before you would have playbook shows that would do maybe like, you know, three segments and they were like five minutes. But now you could have a 20 minute YouTube video of just, you know, one player and what he does to perfect his craft or what he's doing in the overall scheme of the offense or defense. How slow does the old game look now, right? The 70s, like how slow did most of those guys look, right? I mean, or, you know, like I watched one part of that white books. It was the YouTube build it as the last five minutes of Roger Staubach's Hail Mary game. Mm. And there's just like, you know, like people are so much faster and fitter now. 
But it also seems at different positions, though, right? Like if you watch the Steelers running game from the 70s and you watch the, that offensive line, I mean, those guys are cut, they're ripped, and they're broad, but you know, they move so quickly on trap plays. And it, it's kind of a, a different game to watch, but it's so cool to see that part of it has progressed. And while obviously others have progressed too, but yeah, I think there's definitely certain dynamics where you're like, wow, that's actually kind of cool to see, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love it. Yeah. Uh, just uh, one more question about uh, being that you're a Nebraska fan. Did you ever uh, read Jason Peters' memoir? No. Hero of the Underground? Uh-uh. Has yeah. He, have you read it? Oh, dude, it's one of the best football memoirs. It's not just about football. I mean, because after he got drafted by the Panthers, he fell pretty deep into addiction. Uh, you know, to pretty much every drug in the book almost. But this was a book he had co-wrote with a author, and it was just a magnificent book about, like, his journey going from Nebraska – um through the carolina panthers and that's that's like should be the next football book you read absolutely oh uh, you know he was somebody that i kind of turned my nose up at because there was there was something following him and his brother the entire time they were in lincoln there was one scandal of, you know like i think they they sexually assault they grabbed one of them grabbed miss nebraska in a bar allegedly um you know and it was one thing you know that that team it was funny because when you win the national championship, the very next year, all the movie, all the TV trucks pull up outside the stadium and then all the scandals emerge. The next year at Florida State, one was the year before that at Florida State, it was the same thing. All the cheating, all, you know, anybody who, you know, anybody who runs afoul of the law, like there's just extra, extra scrutiny. So when I was there, as great as the team was, there was the uh, Calvin, not Calvin Muhammad, maybe that was his name an LA kid who got shot in the off season and played the whole season with a bullet in his spine. And there were the Peters brothers and there was Paul and there was, you know, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was a lot. It was a lot. And that, again, that like worked against your ability to enjoy, you know, yeah, I a pastime. But um, I went to the game. I went, of course I did every game. Yeah. Raven. Yeah. As far as the the book, so first, can you just let the audience know a little bit about Watertown and um, the Red and Black and sort of what the Empire Football League was, or actually is and, and sort of kind of set the stage for what you were going into? Yeah, they just they won the championship last year. Um, yeah, Watertown is a town of about 60,000 people, and it is um, situated about an hour north of Syracuse um, in a region called the Thousand Islands. Uh, it is... It's always been a very rough and tumble place. It's uh, home to Fort Drum, which is the now I think the largest uh, domestic military installation, home of the 10th Mountain Division, which has been uh, really instrumental in the, the conflict in Afghanistan. So a lot of the guys in this, the football team is was founded in 1895 uh, and has been playing continuously since then. In more recent decades, it's largely been populated the team has by the roster has been filled by guys from that that fort and um it was i thought it was the reason that we could compete against the other larger cities in the league we played teams from um scranton and montreal and and uh, syracuse larger larger population centers but because they had this group of young men that were in ordered to to um to be at the base, we, we could draw on that, that group. And there were a lot of great athletes from Texas and Florida, California on that team that I played on. And um, so, but Watertown is a working class town. Um, not a, There's not a university there or anything. There's, um, uh, you know, a, a lot of, uh, and, and in, in recent years, I think it's been the corrections uh, industry that has been the, the, primary um, or one of the major employers as American manufacturing has dwindled down corrections has gone up. So a lot of the guys that I played with the ones that weren't in the army were actually corrections officers. Gotcha. Um, one of the interesting parts when you were talking about the book was the divide between you and everybody else. Um, not only in terms of you being a new guy, but you know, you're talking about everybody has a working class background uh, and here you come from a university um, did, did you feel like, not an imposter, but did you have like that imposter syndrome per se? And like, how do you go about trying to overcome that and showing them that, 
I'm doing this not just as a project, but because this is something I also want to do too. And believing that you could hold your own in this world. Yeah. I mean, St. Lawrence is a small liberal arts college. It's Tony. It has straw students from, you know, suburban Boston and New York city. And so it has a reputation among the people who grew up here who don't go there. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I was the only college educated guy on the team, but it may have been half of us. And, um, so there were assumptions made about me, some of which were fair. Um, and, you know, um, they called me Professor. That was my nickname, right? Um, Good nickname. Yeah. Um, but they, you know, I wanted to, I, at the beginning, they made, you know, I told them, you know, I told a few people I was going to write about it. And, but by the middle of the season, we'd forgotten. Everybody had forgotten. That's why I was there. And I don't think they ever, none of us thought it was going to get reviewed in Sports Illustrated, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, no, I didn't think that. So we just sort of forgot about that and went on about the business of playing this season and me trying again to prove myself. I don't know the degree to which I ever really did. Um, not imposter, but outsider, definitely. Yeah. You know, I never was, you know, there, there are actually a couple of, of guys that, um, that I'm still friends with, um, uh, that live, live closer to me here. They don't live down in Watertown. They live farther north with me. And we used to carpool some and they were younger, you know, and so I was, I've remained friends with a couple of them. Uh, one of the coaches is a friend of mine. The other one, uh, I don't think he likes his characterization. Um, so he, you know, he's, he's kind of gruff about it, but they just made installed him in their hall of fame, named the field after him, I think. So he's getting all the attention he, he needs. Yeah. He's fine. Yeah. That's I, I actually saw a few of the players that you mentioned and the coach too, on the uh, website, like Al Countryman just got inducted in Doug Black. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Th- that was quarterback and running back years that I played, and, you know, look, Al had everywhere we went, uh, if he went to, he had retired, um, you know, people remembered him because he was just one of those tough guys. You know, he, he was gifted as a football player, but more than that, it was a mental thing. You know, he just, he just would not quit. I think he played a whole second half with no ACL and ran rushed for like 60 yards on 12 carries with no knee, you know, cause you don't need that. Right. That's great. Um, and he was, yeah. Yeah. He was just gritty and tough. He looked like a billy club, you know? And so he was kind of legendary even in his own time uh, around the league. And Doug was, had a great arm, had some very fast receivers and, you know, completed a lot of passes for a lot of yards. Um, I don't know that he was, you know, wasn't quite the leader that, uh, that Al Countryman is. Yeah. In addition to having to overcome the outsider status, did you ever find that maybe some of the guys were also concerned that the book um, that you set out to write was going to be sort of like a mockery of that world and not a mockery in terms of making fun of it, but like, Hey, anybody can play semi-pro ball sort of like minimizing what they do. No, I think they thought me playing was in the beginning. I think they thought that's what Dave McNeil thought when he tried to take me out with like, oh, you know, oh yeah, you know, we got to, he wants to watch a shower, you know, that's what he feels. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I, I proved that night that I could hang. So that was it. You know, um, it's funny because I actually took umbrage with the, the guy who wrote the Sports Illustrated review because he's like, he calls it, I think he calls the review um, Pop Warner for grownups. Mm. You know, and it's like, it's not everybody can play kind of thing, right? I mean, it's not arena football, but it's also not Pop Warner football. And this is a guy I imagine, Charles Salzberg, who doesn't play a lot of football himself. And, you know, and I, it made me think about the way I had characterized it. Like I make some jokes at people's expense, um, my own included, uh, about how we're not, you know, we are weekend warriors. But on the other hand, I didn't want anybody to feel like um, I hear more often, and this makes me happy that people are like, you know, they people do ask about Al Countryman. You know, like I did create a portrait of him that was that did respect his athletic ability or at least grit or whatever it was. Well, I think even too, when you talk about how he would take extra shifts at the correctional facility, so he get off off by the time the football season came around, I think that paid, definitely showed a good picture of him. Yeah. And you know, the, there's a guy named Lynn Patrick, who I've only mentioned a couple of times in the book, who is my Facebook friend. He's an electrician down near Watertown. And uh, just his 
Facebook profile photo is a picture of him probably from the early 80s, you know, mid 80s in his, you know, mud-flecked red and black uniform. And I always tell him, never change your Facebook photo. It's so perfect. And he wrote to me when I, I put something on Facebook about you contacting me. And he wrote, make sure you tell him about the old guy. You know, like he's was, I think, all-time tackles leader. You know, like he was an old, like, he was like a butt-kiss linebacker, not like a Ray Lewis linebacker. You know right. what I mean? And uh, he's always, you know, politically, he and I, you might be not be surprised to find out he and I are politically on the other on opposite sides of the fence, you know. But he he's one of the guys that it never bothered him. You know, it just tickled him that there was a professor out there. And, yeah. you know, when I got in the game against Syracuse, I remember he was the one who, um, like, lined me up right, you know, moved my hips. And, you know, at the end, he was like, hey, you weren't bad. You weren't bad, professor. You know, yeah. like, he was – nobody else was going to throw me that bone, right, except yeah. Lynn. So here I am mentioning him. But he, you know, he's just just salt-of-the-earth guy who just really loved mixing it up. Like, uh, you know, do you remember in – um. I can't think of the name of the movie now, but the the Mark Wahlberg Philadelphia Eagles film, which I really liked. Invincible. Invincible, right? When they play football with the light, car lights turned on, yeah. that's kind of what we were like, yeah. right? We just had a, but other, and you know, and Lynn Lynn would fit in that world, just like beat the hell out of each other, and then go to the corner bar and have a beer. That's their life. And I have friends in New Orleans that do it. It's just softball. It's the same thing. Yeah, year round. 50 years old, doesn't matter. Still, they'll, they'll do it till they bury him, you know. And Lynn, Lynn played until, gosh, he must have been close to 45, 50 years old himself. So. Well, and that's interesting how in the book you talk about how this, um, you know, the red and black actually had the chance to be an NFL franchise at one point, right? Yeah, they have a uniform in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, it's kind of like um, when, when you look back to that early ragtag era, you know, the 1920s and 30s, but even when you go to like the 1950s with Bobby Lane, you know, what you just described is sort of like how it was for those guys before the TV money started really trickling in, or I should yeah, say maybe just yeah. TV exposure. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And, and um, you know, they all had other jobs. You know, mm -hmm. the of them went to law school in, in the off season, and, you know, they had they had jobs like Al Country where you could you could take time off to play because nobody, nobody knew. And, you know, Green Bay is no more likely of a football NFL city than Watertown. You know, you know, I don't know how many people live there now, but if, if they didn't have an NFL franchise, I it would probably be very similar profile to Watertown. So um, who knows why that's the place where the, the team grew up. But yeah, um, that, that era, yeah, there's just something about um, there's some mystique, you know, and I, and I, and I sense that maybe reading the news articles, like the team now doesn't have, they won the championship, but they, they don't have the mystique that that particular group of guys that are all in the Hall of Fame had. And, um, oh, you know, when when Al's knee, he couldn't carry the ball anymore after the tornado sale. So they made him safety and he just patrolled and just took people's heads off. And so the year, a couple of years after I uh, changed teams, they won the title first time since the 80s. And uh, he was playing free safety the night they won it and had like 12 tackles. And, nice. you know, he was like a laser guided missile. You know, he just loved football. Right. You know? Yeah. And I, you, after the year with the red and black, you played for uh, the new team that had formed not too far away. Um, the Thunderbirds? No, Trailblazers. Trailblazers. St. Louis Valley Trailblazers. Yeah, we were, as I write in the book, we were the worst team defensively in the history of semi-pro football. <laughs> yeah, we gave up more points and yards than anyone. And I played linebackers. So, um, you know, I mean, we were an expansion team, yeah. so to speak. So we played like one. Uh, we eventually won a game like two years later in Vermont. I was there. So that felt good. I had helped to start the team. And I was one of the only veterans with any uh, experience in semi-pro. So I went from being a total outsider and a newbie to being the old guy, you know, who yeah. had played before. So that was that was interesting, too. Yeah, it's like your origin story. Yeah, right. yeah. Whenever you were the what? My helmet from that team is you know over my refrigerator in the kitchen. Really? Yeah. Do you still have the helmet from that? I have a red and black helmet too. Yeah, it's 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 it, they gave me an older, heavier helmet. I don't like. It's not as pretty. Mm. So I don't. I don't have that. But yeah. whenever you were like observing players and um 
you know, playing with them, talking with them. Did you kind of get the sense a lot of them too wanted to play to hold on to that childhood fascination with the game? Did you find that some of them were just playing as a stress relief or just because they were passionate? Like overall, why do you think, what drew people to playing semi-pro football? It's interesting. They like Monday night, they would talk more about Monday night raw and wrestling than they were talking about the NFL. It was funny. So I don't think they watched NFL films. I think a lot of them, they were, you know, they were good athletes. They were good football players. They enjoyed the competition. They enjoyed the opportunity to try to beat Syracuse. They enjoyed, you know, Albany had a good team. Glens Falls had a good team. And we, you know, they, I think they liked the competition. Um, It's no fun when you're not competitive. That's what I found on the next team. Even if I played every down, which I usually had to offense, defense, and special teams, we weren't competitive and that was no fun. But when you're in every game you play and there are, you know, a couple hundred people, a thousand people watching you and, you know, under the lights, that's fun. And I think they just, that was what it was. And a yeah. lot of the, you know, a lot of the offensive linemen, like one side of the line, three guys maybe had played high school together too. Mm. So they were, you know, they knew, they knew how they knew the line calls, you know, by heart, they knew or instinctively what the other was going to do and stuff like that. And um, yeah, so I think it was camaraderie competition and just, loving football there's nothing like football there really isn't another sport that i wrote about that some too you know it's not like tennis yeah well yeah. well that's also kind of like um something that can make you a person wonder right like uh, of all the sports a person's going to take up later on in life football and you mentioned you had young guys on the team too but football seems one of the ones that could be the most punishing but in in some regards the most rewarding too because you know I, I did jujitsu for a while and that's you know physical but it's not as you know, bruising as you might think, because, you know, you're not getting hit in the head and you're not, you know, launching your body at, you know, however many miles an hour. So you can get older people that come in and do this, but for something like this, you're putting your body through some strenuous pain for, you know, a pretty intricate and compelling game. Yeah. I, and I, you know, if you don't, I watched a lot of people come out, especially for the new team who'd never played football before and we needed bodies and people, friends would convince them, why don't you go try it? And you watch them, their first hitting drill, you know, and they just, they didn't like it. Yeah. And you, you have really, you know, our problem was we didn't have enough guys who did like the contact. Yeah. Because when you play pro football and you play middle linebacker like I did, you get hit five times and then they snap the ball. It's just so much. It's like wading through contact to get to the football. So you have to, it just becomes, you know, like air, you yeah. know, other, other flying at you. Um and some people just never get used to that. They never get to a place where they enjoy it. I, that's why I feel when I watch MMA, like I can't imagine standing toe to toe someone and just trading blows like that. Oh, yeah. At a certain point, I would go, oh, wow, my face. No. Yeah. It, it takes a certain type of, it takes a certain psychology to be able to go into a, a ring that you can't run out of and have to beat the shit out of another person to win. Watch as soon as somebody, I mean, I don't even, much less my own pain. I don't, I wouldn't really relish blooding someone else's face you know no. that would i was as a kid on the school grounds as soon as i hurt as soon as i realized i'd actually hurt someone i started to apologize yeah well it's even crazy have you heard of the uh, a7 fl it's mm-hmm. uh it's a league that started last year where it's a um a seven on seven league i want to say um and it's full contact without pads yeah and that's that's like the vince the vince movie yeah yeah, 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 exactly. And it's like, uh, I mean, that just seems like, I guess there are some safeguards in place where, you know, don't go head to head, but, you know, certain things are your unavoidable. Body, you know? body, that's what I tell the rugby yeah. players that I talk to is like, your body won't let you go head to head. But what you, the place you get with a helmet on and a full face mask is, you know, a lot of people say, if you take the face mask off the football helmets, guys will stop hitting the way that they hit. But mm-hmm. once you realize what it feels like to use your face, you know, and you have this sense of invincibility, you will, you launch yourself in a way that you won't if you don't, if you're not wearing a helmet. Yeah. I yeah. always think it's when I get his helmet knocked off and he keeps running, you know? Like yeah. You see don't, that sometimes. don't, don't you miss that though? I mean, like I, yeah. I, the most notable example, I guess, is like Jason Winton on that. Uh, I guess it was a Sunday night game against the Eagles. That was, that was like the epitome of, uh, you know, that sort of play, but one of the worst plays I ever saw was when he got hit in the face against the Colts, I guess, when Parcells was coaching. And he crawls off the field. He's got a broken jaw, like it's hanging off. Mm. And he's like crawl, 
off the sideline. That's one of my least favorite NFL moments. He was tough, no doubt about it. He was tough as nails. Yeah. There's also another good NFL moment where uh, it was in the 80s. I remember he was part of the the New York Sack Exchange defensive line for the Jets. And I think he actually – it was a fight, I guess, between them and the Browns, I want to say, and he tried to swing the helmet, sort of like what Mason Rudolph got from – Was it Gassino? Yeah, he just like – he tried to swing it and threw it. Gassino got more – I've seen an NFL Films thing on this. Gassino got more press because he was flasher and he dated uh, Brigitte Nielsen, but – Klecko was the real mainstay. Yeah, but yeah. I remember it was Casano as a helmet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Those are just wild men. Um, so in the obviously you talked about you know your family being intertwined in, into the book. Uh, did Jackson ever grow to love football as much as you? Not as much as me. And he play, I coached him, coached both Jackson and Mason in, in um, middle school, uh, sorry grade school. Um, and Jackson played up until third grade or fourth grade and then he he switched to lacrosse and right before his high school he 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 was a hitter and so right before his high school senior season he said i was i don't know if he said something about it and i said look i said to myself as long as at the end of it he's not sorry he didn't play i'm good with it Mm -hmm. i love it enough for both of us and the last day after the last game that his friends had played he's like god sometimes i think i should have played i'm like don't tell me that, you know, yeah. so my, old, my younger son, the one I was telling you about is his senior season is starting right now. He's not playing. He and his friend talked about it. It would mean taking time off work. He just really loves to go to the gym and lift weights. So, you know, again, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be that dad. That's like, I want you to play. My parents didn't care at all, but I, I hope he doesn't regret it later. He was great as a little kid. He was big and physical and fast. And he just, bashed people but he said at one point dad i don't love it i'm like well then don't do it right exactly and i think it happens so frequently i mean it happens in all sports but you know in football especially when the kid just as hard as an into and you keep pushing him it's just going to create more personal problems you know i hated i hated playing against those kids and coaching them because you know, just want to say to them, why are you here? You don't like this. Like if you're counting back to see you have to hit in the Oklahoma drill and you're changing places to not have to hit somebody, right? Yeah. Then you should be on this team. Yeah. Bless your heart. Go do something else. I was never I you know, I was lucky enough that I was physical enough that I could I would go against anybody. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it hurt. But you know, you if you can't get to that place as a football player, it's probably not the game for you. And that's fine too. Yeah. When, whenever you were playing, and I, I guess maybe this question should be centered, be contextualized around when you played as opposed to now, but do you think that like semi-pro football matters to the community in terms of having like some sort of public, you know, identity or cohesiveness? And the reason why I kind of contextualize it around when you play is because I think like media now, we're able to watch so many games out of market and just have like such national brands that, you know, you can get lose sight of the localism of a game. Yeah, well, I think Watertown is one of the reasons that I would have written that I wrote the book about Watertown and wouldn't have written it about uh, Syracuse, for example, or Glens Falls or Albany is that it, the Watertown Red and Black is, is uh, much more of woven into the fabric of the community's sense of itself than that. So I think it depends. In Watertown, it absolutely had a, has a lot to do still with uh, the community's identity. Mm-hmm. But in a bigger city, other you know, Syracuse has Syracuse basketball and you know, they, there's a team and they're, they're a better team often, but they don't, nobody comes to the, nobody comes to the games, you know? So Watertown, they have a consistent fan base and they're part of it's They, they know, what do you know about Watertown, New York? They have the oldest semi-pro football team. You know, they literally, yeah. that's one of their calling cards. So I think it really depends. Yeah. I kind of wish I would have had a semi-pro team that I, I mean, I guess high school, you know, is something that people are always drawn to if there's no college or football team. Although I kind of grew up about 45 minutes away from uh, UF, but I was never a Gator fan though, you know, so it, it just what was really your team? Was it Florida State? I was more an NFL than anything. I went to the University of South Florida and they had a good team while I was there, but I never really invested myself into college football the way a lot of people, for me, it was always more pro football than it was college. I've gotten as Nebraska has has gotten steadily less competitive. I've found myself more invested in it's hard because you can't, I can't root for another team. 
Right. You know, I all of a sudden become an Oklahoma fan or whatever Alabama fan. So, and and I think um, NFL is, is marketed so well. True. It's, it, it's really amazing. So it's fun to watch and follow it. And, you know, it's a, it's a pastime. Well, and I think too, in college football, it's becoming increasingly difficult because number one, you just have, you know, select teams that are continuously winning the national championship, you know, most notably Alabama, but you know, obviously, you know, Clemson has, you know, been in the running and has won a few times. And um, it, it seems like, yeah, you seem like you kind of know who are, who's going to be the final four before the final four comes out. So I think that's one. I think as it's becoming more consolidated in terms of the biggest divisions, oh, conferences, you know, you're kind of losing, I guess, a little bit of a, a mystique around certain parts of the country and the style of football they play and those special rivalries. It's funny. There's more parity on the one hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because you what fit players figured out is you can get to the NFL from anywhere. Yeah. You can get to him from because when Nebraska was great, it was because it was one of the few places where you you know the, there were ten or twelve, twenty schools where if you went there, you probably were going to get a look from the NFL. Now you can go there from Central Michigan, you know, yeah. South Florida, you know, Memphis, anywhere. Um, and I think that hurts teams like Nebraska because they don't have a lot of other draws. Um, but while there's parity, there's also, you know, uh, when you can carry a hundred players, the best 100 all want to go to Alabama. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so then the next 200, the next hundred go to Georgia and then some go to LSU, you know, um, and between, you know, between Texas, California, Louisiana, that's like probably 60% of college rosters, D1 rosters. Right. So, uh, it's hard. And the, so the NFL has the advantage of everybody has a relatively a, a fair shape. Somehow baseball manages not to do that with the Yankees. Somehow they manage right, to yeah. out everybody else. But football, you know, you can – the fact that you can have uh, an expansion team in a, in a championship game within two or three years of their formation says something about the parity of it, you know. Yeah, what was it, uh, Jacksonville in their second year? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you've got coaching and you've got talent, you know, you can do it. But anyway. Yeah. So I guess so to – start to round off the conversation uh do you ever go to any reunions or get togethers banquets or is that kind of no, I'm not in the hall of fame which i think is wrong yeah they should Although, be you know, I, honorary mention am, at least i'm uh some of them probably don't like some things i said uh but i just you know you can't pull punches and write a book that's worth anything so i didn't mean to piss anybody off but i just wanted to write the truest book that i could um, but I am referenced on their Wikipedia page, the nice. Wikipedia entry. Nice. So that's good. Um, no, I haven't been back. I, I went, did I go back for a game? I was thinking about this summer, uh, one summer night, like, oh, maybe I'll go down. So maybe I will. Maybe they play in the playoffs again this year. I'll go down. But there's always a more compelling pro game or college game on, or, you know, my kid has something. Or, um, But, yeah, it, it, that's that's how I first – my first – game was a game I didn't play and I went down there kind of skulked around the sidelines and checked it out so I, yeah I, I can see myself going back and doing that again yeah that'd be like a good like a mini documentary to do or something yeah yeah I think you mentioning how some people didn't always uh, receive it well in the book I think one of the funniest lines you had in there when people were talking about like semi-pro ball and where they played you said semi-pro ball is full of semi-truths that was a funny True. one. I, I like that one. A lot, of, a lot of legend, a lot of legend. You know, I think it's really good. George Ashcraft, it's like he he is in the Hall of Fame. They named the field after him. But he's also, you know, like I probably would be, um, he's created his image very carefully. He doesn't like someone else to take control of that image. And, and like, you know, like nobody likes – I've appeared in books by other people. I hate it. Mm-hmm. I want to be the right. I want to – craft my own image so he's the only one of when the when it first came out and it was in the new york times and sports illustrated uh and all over the local media i was a little afraid to go to the mall in watertown i didn't know who i'd see and i wasn't physically afraid but i didn't i wanted to avoid any i had such a good feeling about the book i didn't want someone's um to ruin it for you you that energy to ruin it right so and i by and large have managed you know no nobody the statistician wrote me. He's like, here's why I changed your sack to a, you know, a tackle or whatever, you know, like, really? I'm like, dude, yeah, yeah. He, he was like, oh, how petty. Uh, really, that, that I had, that I had, well, what it was, was I guess since he fumbled it, it wasn't really a sack. It was 
a forced fumble and recovery <laughs> by somebody else. You know, and that's technically true, you know. Yeah. Um, but I hardly ever, I mean, that was the year I hardly ever got on the field, right? I just right, wanted yeah. my sack. Yeah, you cherish that, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, uh, cool. I, I was actually looking on YouTube to see if I could find some games from the red and black. And I, I did find one from the 2002 year. And they were playing, I guess, in the championship game. Were they in the championship that year? Yeah, yeah. Probably. It was it was against the I, the other team had like yellow and green uniforms. Glens Falls Green Jackets. There you go. Um, and yeah, he um, Ashcraft did a interview pregame with the reporter there, and yeah, he he looks like someone who definitely wants to you know keep a his own image out there, keep a low profile. He's going to speak when he wants and not not let anybody try to take him out of context, I guess you could say. It's the same thing. I don't know that he has anything to do with the off design of the offense or of the defense. He's kind of like, he's kind of like Al Davis, you know, like once was a coach may have won. He played once at one point, broke his leg really badly, had to quit, was a coach, but he's more like the CEO. Right. Yeah. And like Jerry Jones. Right. But he doesn't have a lot to do with, uh, he's like I called him a carnival barker. I don't think he'd like that very much. But that's what he's like. He's tr- when he when they interview him about the games, he's also trying to generate interest, people to come to the games, try to keep the mystique alive. Like all of it, a lot of it relies on his. And he's been that coach since I played all every year, so twenty something years plus whatever before that. So you know he deserves whatever recognition they give him. But I think he's somebody who I actually went and interviewed him. For the game. I think he was actually angry with me that I had switched and played for the other team. He's like, was it about the driving? Was it about gas money? We could have given you gas money. And it, and I was like, no, it was about playing time, George. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to drive. The book's done. I'm not going to drive an hour each way three times a week to stand and watch. You know? Right. And, uh, you know, I, th- I but it was in a situation where I think playing time was out of his hands. The other players decided who played. Yeah. Yeah, well, and those, those are- well, and you wrote plenty of times. How I mean, you you and um, Candace had just had Jackson, and you guys were you know were trying to get a family going, so it's hard to go back and forth as far as it was from you. Yeah, yeah. She she you know was mostly a good sport. In later years, she would talk about how she went to every game. She went to about three out of ten, mm. <laughs> and left as years wore on. But in her imagination, she went to all of them. Right. Must have felt like all of them. So. Yeah. But also the um the offensive coordinator you identified with pretty well too, right? He was the guy that ended up becoming the head coach Mike, of the. Our, our friendship suffered with the new team because when I left that team, you know, I I feel he I think he felt like I left him in a lurch. I played three or four more years, but yeah, he's that was his. He was kind of he he was on the outs with Ashcraft, so he mm-hmm. created that. That's and you found that all over the league, all these splitter teams. I think I wrote about that. Yeah, you did. Yeah, like horses and the guy would just go take his ball go start his own team and they they'd all play each other and be you know when we played them we were always much far less talented than they were but it was always a grudge match mm-hmm. even then they might they ultimately win by four touchdowns but we it was our best performance every year yeah and one year we recruited all these young kids from tupper lake new york and really athletic and all the best like we almost beat them i think we were up like 16 8 at half and it was like oh man we might actually beat the red and black this would be amazing and then they just poured it on at the end and beat us by three touchdowns and you know our country was like enough of this we don't lose to this team enough of this garbage and just decided to play you know like yeah uh, but i remember him saying that in our huddle against montreal one time they had never lost to montreal and he said we don't lose to montreal and it was like yeah "Yeah, how serious yeah. yeah Now, overall, how do you think you uh, kind of grew from that experience? Or how, how did it kind of change you and uh, stick with you all these years later? Um, I think I probably, you know, um, I learned for the second time why I had not played at Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> you know, pretty, mm-hmm. you know, second string rider, second string football player too, you know. So, you know, I put to put childish things to rest a little bit in a way. Mm-hmm. Um and I realized where, you know, my real gifts were, which were in writing probably. Yeah. Um, and I learned a lot about, you know, prejudging people. I got really upset when people did it to me. I get really upset when people say, what do you coach at St. Lawrence? By the same token, you know, meet a guy like Lynn Patrick, you know, and I, you know, I 
I made prejudicial assumptions about him that weren't fair too. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was, it was good. It was good. I learned a lot about masculinity and about machismo and, right. you know, what those things, you know, uh, those things, how much or how little those things matter. Yeah. Um, you've written a couple other books, uh, since then. Um, one is a, a true crime, correct? Yes. I know we were talking about that before. Yeah, it's a, it's a, well, it was a, it's a memoir about a, the murder of a classmate of mine in 1979 and then the execution 20 years later of the man, um, who was convicted of killing her. And it becomes a, a meditation on, uh, the death penalty and poverty and crime and, you know, mental illness and a lot of other things. Um, and I'm proud of that book. I, I think I grew a lot between 2001, 2010 as a writer experience. Right. You know, first book, you're not sure you can even do it. It's like your first marathon. They're like, I might just die right here at mile 13. Yeah. But once you, then, you know, okay, I, I just know it's about digging in, keeping working. And so, yeah. And then the, the other book was actually one I wrote prior to dream season, but, but didn't publish it. It's a collection of essays about my family and growing up in Tennessee. Mm. If you were ever write, uh, well, number one, would you ever have an interest in writing another football book? And if you were like, you know, would you kind of tread on new territory? Like, you know, what, what would something do you think that you would be interested in exploring? I mean, I obviously wouldn't play again. Right. You know, one of the things that happened when I was living in London was I saw, felt like I, I, I could see the NFL seeding London for an NFL team and not a world league team and not an NFL Europe team but an actual team in London. Because if you think about it, you can fly to London from New York faster than you can fly to Seattle from New York. Sure. Right. In a global sort of world. Uh, and, and so I, and I think there is sufficient interest. They're playing half a season's worth of games there now, right? Uh, four, four games there, like they're only eight home games. So I would write a book about the, you know, for example, like a Moneyball book about the development of the NFL in London and mm. the seating franchise and that kind of thing. I think that would be something I'd write about. I could see, I actually proofread George Rogers, the Heisman Trophy winner. I proofread his, um, the press sent it to me uh, for proofreading his, his memoir. And I thought, well, he could have used a ghostwriter or a better one than he had, you know, so I could see myself doing a profile of mm -hmm. somebody like that. Um, yeah. The, you know, the, the books about Nebraska have been written, um, yeah, I mean, sometimes it's hard to like find a, a new twist on you know biography or doing because honestly, nothing. I mean, we talked earlier about like player biographies, but I mean, I, I don't like the ones where it's like you know the coach or the player on the front cover with a football, you know, with like a a football term as the you know the title, like you know fourth and long or something like that. It's yeah, I like things that are a little more. The great ones, the great ones do distinguish themselves. You know, I mean, uh, there's I forgot Jim Bunting's baseball book. Um, Paper Lion. Well, I think Bill Bradley has a great basketball book. There are some that stand out, but it's usually the writing, and it's usually the fact that they're not only about somebody bought me and I haven't read. Um, there's a book called Manny versus Manning versus Brady or Brady versus Manning, and okay. a big time writer wrote it. I could see myself, you know, I, I could, I would love to write a book about NFL films. I thought the only other job that I would have ever wanted. Well, there's two, one would be right for Saturday Night Live and the other one would be to work in the archives of the NFL films. So those are the only two other things I would have ever wanted to do besides this. So I can see myself, you know, kind of doing a history of that. Yeah. I actually, um, I got to interview, uh, one of the directors who used to work at NFL films, uh, Phil Tuckett. And yep. he, had, oh, yeah. he, and he, uh, directed that, uh, Pottstown documentary. It was fun, like revisiting that with him. Um, and then we did like, uh, the best of John Facenda on one episode with, uh, his name is Chris Willis. Yeah. Yeah. It's oh, me. I'll have to, I, I looked at a lot of them, but I'll have to go back. I mean, I, I play the end of the Super Bowl three show, mm. two quarterbacks on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> as a quarterback. Yeah. An old one. No, two champions. Yeah. An old one as a man. I play that for everybody after like, all this that's like it yeah. brings me to tears yeah and then then, then they a little truthy little piano melody and the football's we're at resting in the grass where it's fallen and unitas like walks off the field for the last time you're like oh god yeah, yeah. i mean that's that's what? that's poetry to me 
Well, and, and I love like the more abstract ones they have, like the young, the old, and the bold, or uh, you know, try and catch the wind, like more thematic around like certain positions. Um, and, and they all still. The, the autumn wind is a raider. Yeah. Oh, you can't yeah, get any better. Terrible poem. Him reading it is just perfect. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's incredible. Well, do you uh, have a place where people could still get the book? Like, it, would eBay or Amazon still be the best place Amazon to try to find it? Best place, yeah. yeah. Or Abe Books. I don't know if you know about Abe oh, Books. Oh, I'm a huge fan, there. yeah. Yeah, I got a lot. I got a lot of got a household books, but a lot of the signed first editions that I have, I got from Abe. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm going to put a link so everybody can um, find the book. And like I told you, whenever I reached out, I think it's like really a hidden gem for football books because I have like an entire bookshelf. And this was definitely one that like I'm going to reread at a certain point. And I'm glad I definitely took the time. I definitely went through it within a couple of days. So I hope this was as fun for you as it was for me, Bob. And thanks again for coming. Oh, on. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, you can't, you can't imagine a book you wrote 20 years ago that you know, that didn't sell out its first printing. Like the fact that people are still reading it, it's just, just that alone is, uh, is really gratifying. So I'm grateful to you.